Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. We are experts in losing our way and trying to make our own way. And therefore, we tend to be also experts in unhappiness, isolation, and the ability to resist genuine love. And then in our lostness, we are experts at making up stories about what God is like. Um, This is one of the many things I've learned from my wife, that we tend to do this when we're away from someone, we're kind of estranged from someone, we make up stories about what they're thinking and feeling uh, and using our point of view. And so we tend to do that with God as well from our point of view of lostness and brokenness and feeling unloved or feeling isolated, unhappy, then we sort of recreate God in our image and the things that we feel. Uh, and we sort of put that onto God and say, well, that must be how God feels about me too. And so we kind of boil that down to most of us along the way. We think, you know, God will put up with me. God is a good God. He's a patient God, and he'll tolerate me. That's, that's, that's often where we land. But the good news is, of course, that in our lostness, God does not wait for us to get things sorted, to get it all straightened out, to figure all the way out. Uh, I love the old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, all the fitness he requireth, the old hymn said, is to feel your need of him. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And so in our place of lost to the point of unlikely return, God finds us. And when God finds us, it gets really exciting. That's, that's the Katie bar the door moment. This is when the celebration is brewing. This is when the invitations go out. This is when the whole block has an atmosphere of excitement and celebration and cars are arriving and the festivities are happening, the air horns, the confetti, the whole mess when God finds us. In order to highlight that, in Jesus' ministry, he tells us some stories. Uh, In our tendency to be lost and to be remote and to be away from God, God tells us some really good stories here. Uh, One Jeannie read for us this morning, uh, and you can think of it in terms of uh, economic impact if you want to. There's a wealthy, God, God in this story is likened to a wealthy sheep owner a wealthy shepherd, somebody who has the ability and the means and the, and the land to have a hundred sheep. And out of those 100 sheep, there's one that goes missing. And that's significant in all agricultural production. Of course, everyone counts, but out of a hundred, you know, 1% is big, but it's, you know, it's 1%. And so God, of course, is going to, you know, to be looking for the, the lost here. The, the shepherd is looking and he finds the sheep and he rejoices. He carries the lost sheep home on his shoulders and he really puts himself into it, invites his friends and family and says, hey, come celebrate. I had a lost sheep, as you all know, and I found him. So let's celebrate. This is good news. The next story in the same context, right back to back, Jesus tells is a story, a parable about a, a, an impoverished widow. So in this story, God is presented as an impoverished widow. That's how we're seeing a window into God's nature. And the impoverished widow has 10 coins to her name. This is her savings, which isn't a lot, but it's it's all she has. And out of the 10 coins that she has, there's one that goes missing. 
which is highly significant economically. And so that one goes missing. You better believe she's going to clear the house. She's going to turn over every table. She's going to move every curtain and every lamp and do the whole bit. She's going to find that lost coin. And when she does, what's she going to do? She's going to throw a party. She's going to be excited. She's going to invite her neighbors over and say, I, there was one coin. There was, there was a tenth of what I own have to my name and I lost it, but I found it and it's time to celebrate. This is good. So the characteristics of these people in the story, and we're understanding the character of Jesus, the character of God here that Jesus is presenting is that there's joy always over what was lost that is found. There's a parallel in heaven too. It just gets cosmic with each story. It gets more and more cosmic. And now we find out there's rejoicing in heaven. There's rejoicing among the angels when one sinner repents. In fact, there's so much rejoicing. There's more rejoicing in heaven when one person recognizes their need for grace and they return home, even as far as strange as they might have been, than there is for one or 99, excuse me, for one, 99 righteous people, meaning people who, people who we don't understand our need for grace uh, that, at all. So that's what's happening in heaven. And then the crescendo of the three stories is a story where we go from someone who has a hundred sheep and they lose one, a widow who has 10 coins and loses one, and then we have a man who has two sons and he loses them both. So God is presented in this final parable as a father of two estranged sons. I don't know what title your Bible, if you have your Bible with you or something, if you've looked at this story, what title your Bible translation might give to this story. Mine just says either, you know, they call it the prodigal son, uh, or even worse, I have one Bible translation that calls it the prodigal son and his brother. <laughs> and so the word prodigal just means excessive, you know, far it's uh, over the top. Uh, both, uh, all, all characters in this story are exhibiting some sort of prodigalness. And so, of course, we know that these titles in our Bibles, in our English Bibles, are given by people that are putting these translations together. They're not the authoritative inspired word of God. They're just titles to help us know which story we're talking about. And I don't know, it might be a good exercise for us. What would you call this story? What would you call the story of this father who has two sons and he loses them both? I took a crack at it a couple this week. What about, what if we called it two free sons who chose to enslave themselves? Or what about the constantly compassionate father? Or perhaps when excessive love overtakes excessive living. You might, you're going to have some good ones, some ideas. What might we call this instead of simply the prodigal son? Because there's three characters in the story here. So um, as I was trying to understand this story again this year, this time, uh, I, I, I got out my storyboard and I was just seeing this and like movie scenes. And there's these four major scenes that are happening in this story of this man who has two sons, and both are estranged. And the first scene is at the father's house, right? This is home central. This is at the hacienda. This is at the, the Beit Av in Hebrew culture. This is where all the families of this family live together. This is like your big mafia family. Everybody's together around this big fence where all of our livestock, we've got everything together. This is home central. This is where the good stuff happens. So we're here in the father's house, and immediately we find out that there's a man who has two sons, and the younger of the two sons come to his father, 
and he asks for his inheritance. And this does not happen. It's not supposed to happen. In Hebrew culture, the inheritance is only distributed after the death of the patriarch. And so by asking for his inheritance, the younger son is saying, hello, father, I hope you die. And in fact, you're dead to me. And I want my inheritance now. I want to take what's coming to me. And I've got a really good plan for my life. And I would like to have it now. Thank you very much. So you are not my father anymore is what the younger son is saying. And the father in his benevolence, he gives the son what he asked for. So he divides the inheritance between the boys. Uh, It's customary for the younger son to get, you know, if there's two, in this case, he'd get a third and the older son would get two thirds. And so the son, the younger son gets his portion. The father divides the property. And that's, that's the end of the scene at the father's house. And so the next scene begins when the younger son decides, you know what, I'm going to take everything that I just received, all the wealth now to my name, and I'm going to go into another country. I'm going to get, the, I'm going to get far away from here, right? I'm anywhere but here. I'm leaving home. And so he goes off to what Jesus calls a far country. And in the far country, we find out that this younger son squanders all that he has. He takes all that he has with him, and he loses everything he has in a, in a short period of time. He squanders it all on reckless living. You can fill in the blanks. You don't need, you know, you can use your imagination on the kind of things he was up to uh, that got rid of his money so fast. And uh, not, not any of them a lot of fun uh, looking back. So he squanders everything he has. He finds himself in, in actual poverty. There's a famine in the land. And so whatever little plans he had to kind of keep afloat, they're not working out anymore. So he has to hire himself out. Now, this is someone with an inheritance who goes to a place to live it up. He doesn't have anything left. He decides it's time. I've got to eat. I'm starving. I got to hire myself out. So he hires himself out uh, to take care of someone's pigs. And again, this is Jewish culture. This is a story about someone who's gone as far away as you can go from home. You can't get any further away than that. You're in another country. You're with another group of people, and you are feeding pigs. That's, that's as far out there as you can get. That's what's happening in the far country. But in the far country, something happens to the younger son. The different translations say it differently, but the son, the younger son comes to his senses, or he comes to himself. He wakes up, and he says to himself, you know what? This is ridiculous. I'm starving. But I know even my father's hired hands are taken care of. They get three square meals a day. They have a roof over their head. And they don't have these kind of needs in life. So here's my plan. I will arise. I will, I will stand up and I will go home. And I will tell my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And I've sinned against you. I've broken all the covenants. I've squandered all your wealth that you gave me. I told you I didn't want you to be my father anymore. So I understand that, but would you just take me back as a servant? And if you could do that, I will live my life out as one of your hired hands. And he, he thought, this is, this is how I'll bring humility back into the house, and this is how I'm going to make it. It's fascinating that as he wakes up and repents, he, he says this phrase, I will arise, which is the same word that Luke uses to talk about the resurrection of Jesus later. So even just as the guy says, I will arise, we're already seeing him come back to life. Right? He's been dead and he's waking up. So, scene three. 
Scene three is when the younger son follows through on his plans. He, he stands up and he walks home. And while he's still a long way off, we're back at the father's house now. While he's still a long way off, the father sees him. And when the father sees him, you know, I always just picture him sitting in one of those big cracker barrel rocking chairs or something. And, he, and he's sitting there and it's like he doesn't just sit there and kind of look at his watch and check to see. He runs out to meet the young man. And, and you definitely, if you were an old man in this culture, you did not disdain yourself to run anywhere. You did not run, certainly not down the street or down a pathway. And so this, this old man runs out to his son. He felt compassion for him. Uh, Jesus says that he ran, he embraced him, he kissed him. And then he begins, so the younger son, of course, he begins his speech, right? Like we all do. And, uh, you know, Father, I, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he addresses him as dad and he, he goes back through the whole speech and, and you can tell the father sort of, he's, he's hearing, but he's interrupting too because he starts talking and what he says is, quick, bring Everything that we can that we have that would tell this guy that he's back in the family. Bring the robe, bring him shoes, bring him the ring, our family ring, and go get the fatted calf, right? We don't have a whole pin of them. We have one that we save for stuff like this. We have one. And go get that fatted calf and kill him, and we're gonna have a party. We're gonna eat, we're gonna celebrate. And my son was dead, and now he's alive. And we we must celebrate. He was lost and now he's found, and so they begin to celebrate. Well, that's a great scene. And if that was the end of the story, that'd be the end of the story and it would be a great story still. But for those of us that need a little bit different perspective and another invitation, a little bit of a vision into another way of being distant from God, we shift the camera out to the fields. All right. And out in the fields in scene four, we have the older son. And the older son, and oh gosh, we know this story, right? The older son is just doing his duty. He's doing his work. And he, he kind of starts coming back into the house and he hears music and dancing and he's going, this is strange. I didn't have this on my Google calendar. This did not come up. I didn't know we were having a party today. And so he asks one of the servants, hey, what's going on back home? Why all the music and dancing? And uh, the servant says, well, um, your brother came home and... You know, we only have one brother. Your brother came home and your father has killed the fatted calf. The servant even knows why. He says, because uh, your, son, your brother is alive and, and he was dead. And so the older son then, in hearing this news, he's, he becomes angry. He becomes angry and resentful and he refused to go to the party. So, Scene four, out in the field, the this, this older son stays out there, and he does not go into the house to the party, and he stays outside. And so we, we, can, we have a picture of that, of what that looks like, and there we stand. God, this father in this story, uh, hears about this, and he says, where's my other son? And so he, just like he ran down the road to find his younger son, he leaves the house, he leaves the party. And he goes out into the field and he finds his older son. And he finds the older son and he begins to plead with him. As only a, a father, as only a parent would plead with a child to come and participate. The older son, however, in his 
anger, says, and it's fascinating, he does not even address his dad as dad, father. He says, look, you listen here, buddy. I have served and I have served and I have broken my back for you. And you have never, I've never disobeyed you, you know, which is surely not entirely true. I've never disobeyed you. And you have never even so much as given me a goat so I can have a party with my friends. Nothing. I've never been able to have a party that I want. And yet this son of yours, he doesn't even call him his brother, this son of yours has wasted everything that this family worked to provide on destitute living, on horrible stuff, all the stuff that breaks God's law, and you have killed the fatted calf for him. And then the father turns to the older son and he says, my son, even, even though at different times the, the kids don't acknowledge him as dad, he both times acknowledges them as son. He says, son, you know that you are always with me. You're always here. And that everything I have is yours. Everything that you see around here, this whole place, anything that I possess belongs to you. You're the older son. But we had to celebrate and be glad for what was dead has come back to life and what was lost has been found. As it should be. And as it will be. I think it's helpful to, anytime we hear this story, to kind of identify characters in the story and say, okay, at this point in my life, where, where do I most resonate? Like, where does this hit home for me the most? And there are obviously times in our lives where we feel like the younger son. And we know we can tell that story with our eyes closed, right? We know exactly what that's like. Um, and then there's the times where we just really can see that, oh my goodness, I, I'm, I'm standing right in the middle of that field and I, I didn't even realize it. I heard that story and I was reminded I think perhaps in the church, we most often need to observe the elder son. Uh, I, I agree with the church fathers in this, that uh, they would often preach on this text and they would use it, they would see it as an allegory between Israel and the Gentiles. So you can imagine in the, in the younger son who leaves home, goes to the far country, he's, he's in another place with another language with pagan people, he's, um, he's feeding pigs, and he's doing everything that breaks God's law. So here's, here we have the Gentiles over here. And then with the older son, you have the dutiful, following the rules, doing the stuff. And here is Israel. Here's God's people. And of course, from time to time, we forget the heart of why we follow the rules. We forget the heart of why we stay steadfast and why we serve. And so we forget those things and we become distant. We become like the Pharisees who, if you'll remember the beginning of the story, this is who Jesus is telling the story to. He's telling the story to people in Israel, people in God's community who are the leaders and we should know better. And we should be the ones that recognize when there are people that need to come home. And so when Jesus is out having dinner with the people that need to come home, uh, it's us that sit around and go, why is Jesus having dinner with those people? And Jesus, why are you having dinner with those people? And Jesus says, I just got to tell you guys a story to remind you. Because you know, you know, we, we know, we know why. But we need that reminder. 
And so the, the younger son, of course, is aware of his need for grace. The older son is unaware. Uh, the Gentiles are sometimes the quickest to respond. They recognize their need for grace. They're, they're unhappy. Uh, and then often in the church in Israel, we're, we're just unaware. We're forgetful of our need for grace. The younger son repents. The older son resists. The younger son calls out father, and he has this whole deal, I've sinned against you. The older son doesn't address his dad, his father. Look here. But then, of course, wherever we are, which son we relate most to, by far the most prominent theme in Luke 15 is God's disposition towards us. God's disposition towards sinners. If you ever want to know how God feels about you, if you ever want to know how God feels about people, read Luke 15. It's a great refresher. It reminds me, it reminds us of how God truly thinks about us, how he truly feels about us. The, the character of God is just so salient in this text. God is prodigal. He is excessive in his love for us. God leaves the house. He leaves the home. He leaves heaven and becomes fully man, was born of a virgin. In, in Luke's such a great storyteller, and when he tells the story, he has the, the father interacting with the older son. The father tells the older son, it was necessary that we celebrate. It's one of Luke's favorite little rhetorical devices. It's the word day, and it means necessary. And it's like there's a divine necessity that we celebrate. This is required of God's nature that we celebrate. We learn something about God here. There's a divine necessity as God is reaching out to both sons. My son, my son, there's a restoration pathway always. There's a restoration pathway of a cloak and a ring and a feast. And there's a restoration pathway of you're always with me. You're always here. And I'm always with you. So as Jesus offers these stories to those who are resistant to his interaction with outsiders, uh, may we hear the good news in a new way. Uh, may we be grateful for the ways that we have been reached outside the camp, so to speak. Uh, may we become the people who exhibit this kind of joy, this kind of divine joy. I want to be a person who exhibits divine joy. I want to be like a front line of, of defense for God's joy in the world. And too often, I'm God's like wrong interpretation. I'm like, I'm like God's grouch, you know, when good things are happening sometimes. So it's, it's God's joy must be conveyed, and he's called us to be a part of this joy. A closing detail about this story. We don't know what happens to the older son, which I just love. I love that the story is open. It gives me hope as an older son. I'm literally the oldest son in my family, and I behave like an oldest son pretty often. Um, but it, it leaves it open. We don't know. For all we know, the guy breaks down, and he goes to the party. You know. And either way, we know the invitation is open. We know it's still possible. We know that pathway is still open for us. And so it's a beautiful thing to consider. There is no country too rough where God will not come find us. There is no place where we can't hear the good news and repent and believe in the compassionate character of God. There is never a place that we can wander too far, that we can't come home. And when we come home, there will be joy that awaits us.
In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.